Today's episode is brought to you by Shutterstock.com. At Shutterstock.com, you'll find the perfect video for your next creative project, whether it's for your website, advertising, multimedia presentation, or other type of film. You can choose from over 2 million high-quality stock video clips, 2D animations, and 3D motion graphics. They have clips in a variety of digital formats from low-res for web usage to HD, that's high definition, and now some in 4K. Shutterstock ensures you get quality and selection from its video clip libraries. Many contributors to Shutterstock are professional filmmakers, which you will know if you go and look at the images and the videos. They look professional quality. Shutterstock reviews each video individually for content and quality before adding it to its library, and they have over 20,000 video clips every week. So every time you visit, you'll find something new. They also have flexible pricing. You can choose between individual clips or video packs for the best deal. Shutterstock makes it easy. Today, I found an awesome video on Shutterstock of lightning. Yeah, it's really cool. And in fact, there are a bunch of videos of lightning, which you should totally check out. Uh, You find the video, you save it to your clip box, and then you can use them and share them with others. Uh, You can try Shutterstock today by signing up for a free account. No credit card is needed. Just start an account, begin browsing Shutterstock to help imagine what your next project will be like, and save video selections to your clip box. Once you decide to purchase, use the offer code NWP1114, and new accounts will receive 20% off footage clips. That's Shutterstock.com, and for 20% off any new video clips uh, with a new account, use the offer code NWP1114. We thank Shutterstock for their support. Now entering Nerdist.com. My name is Ben Blacker. I'm the creator of the Nerdist Writers Panel series. Follow me on Twitter, at Ben Blacker, and let me know who you'd like to see on this series. I'm always looking for new ideas for TV show, movies, books, comics, anyone you like who writes things. Do me a favor, though, and check the archive to see if we've already had that person on whom you would like to hear from. Uh, I am a television writer. I've written for Supernatural, Super Ninjas, and I'm currently on the Netflix uh, DreamWorks show Puss in Boots. I'm also the co-creator of the Thrilling Adventure Hour stage production in the style of old-time radio, which is a weekly podcast here on the Nerdist Network. For more information, visit thrillingadventurehour.com. Each and every Nerdist Writers Panel benefits 826LA, the national writing program for students. Uh, Please check them out at 826LA.org. It's the Nerdist Writers Panel, and it's hosted by Ben Blecker, where he gets a bunch of writers, and he asks them lots of questions, and it's starting now, so this will be the end of the theme. Thank you for doing this. Let's talk about it. You're running Criminal Minds, uh, probably the most uplifting show on TV. <laughs> Arguably. Um, and what, what se- you're going into the 10th season? 10th? Or this is the 10th season. This is the 10th season. This is crazy. And you've been with the show since when? Since the first episode. So Get out of here. The pilot was shot, signed, sealed, delivered, and then the writing staff was hired, and we came on board under Ed Bernero's leadership as the showrunner. And um, we talked about what we liked and didn't like with the pilot and what we should keep and, and get rid of. Wait, and that's really interesting. That is not often a conversation that happens. You know what? That was one of Ed's... Um, strong suits and we did that every season in fact and we continue that tradition of you know we only had the pilot to go on and Jeff Davis was in the room with us and we would you know say the quotes work but the quotes in every act feel pretentious so maybe let's keep them just at the beginning and the end let's Mm -hmm. just bookend quotes and that's a tradition that we've kept up Mm -hmm. Um, but Ed was very good at the constructive criticism of the series. So at the end of every season, um, you know, we had just climbed a mountain and we didn't want to criticize or praise anything that we had done because we were exhausted. And yet the very first day of the next season, we would sit in the room and do that exact thing. Okay. What worked last year and what didn't work and why, and what do you think we could do to change it? And we have continued doing that, um, every year. And it is incredibly helpful, um, to say, 
okay, this episode where we sort of went off on a tangent or did something that was not traditional criminal minds was a really fun, creative episode, but it didn't necessarily translate on the screen. Or we take those chances and it worked amazingly well one year and then the next year it falls flat on its face. So all of it is a learning curve. And, and you know, even 10 years into the series, you can say... Um, okay, let's do just a character-driven piece mm-hmm. and the fans are going to eat it up and everything else. And they do, because I do believe the fans watch this show for the characters for and sure. the heroes. And they like to be scared, but it's more about the journey of our heroes. Mm-hmm. So uh, we can do that and they eat it up and love it. Or we could do it and they're like, uh, why did you only concentrate on this one character? I love this other character. Because our fans are very... Loyal, very fanatical, yes. and very much they have their favorites. They're passionate about their favorites. They are. <laughs> they are definitely. Um, it's it's funny to hear you describe the that kind of communal conversation that happens because uh, the thing that stands out to me most about Criminal Minds is what a changeable show it is. Even though it very much can stay the same, like the the premise is always there. The premise is a solid foundation, right? But you guys also are not afraid to make big changes. The most obvious being, like, cast stuff. Right. Well, and some of that being 10 years on the air, you're Mm -hmm. going to have those changes. Um, And thankfully, because the show is rooted in a real group of people, Mm -hmm. um, the reality in that is that people do leave and they move and they change their careers and they do all of these things. Um, So we've just been able to sort of... adopt that and and make it our reality as well um and sometimes those are dealt to us sure um you know we nobody was expecting to have to write mandy out of the series Mm -hmm. uh season three and yet we did and we kind of kept it as close to reality as possible which was he just didn't want to do it anymore and and there's something so true in uh, an agent who sees so much darkness yeah. saying, you know what, I'm hanging it up and I'm walking away and I have to do that for my own health and sanity and everything else. And and so we played to the real FBI agent who would do that kind mm-hmm. of thing. And it oh, also happened to... I assumed to- he just got promoted to Homeland Security. <laughs> I did not realize. Now you know the truth. Now I know the truth. Um, I'm thinking specifically, like... Getting rid of act, getting rid of, but writing out actors is one thing because oftentimes you know that's contractual or it's time for them to go or they want to go or whatever it is. But bringing in actors is a, another thing, and that's that must feel exciting, especially ten years in. It is. It definitely is, and we've had such success with it as well, which is amazing. That Joe Montana came season three, and it feels like he's always been oh, here. Absolutely. Um, Paget Brewster came in season two and left at the end of seven and uh jane triplehorn was here for mm-hmm. two years and now jennifer love hewitt's here and with each introduction of a character and i've been here now for the reintroduction of paget's character the introduction of gene and now the introduction of love so it's been um an exciting time in the writer's room to be able to say okay we're going to have a new character and what do we want to do what haven't we done yeah. what sort of a skill set that isn't going to be duplicated Mm -hmm. and we really were able to find that with Jennifer Love Hewitt's character because um, just right off the bat after reconnecting with her because I'd known her for years on Party of Five way back when um, but when we reconnected I remembered quickly how funny she is and how um, just her she's smart and witty and charming and I thought let's bring that because we already have that Mm -hmm. with our cast, let's bring that and sort of give her more of a, a smart-ass attitude about things. And um, It's unusual it's unus- in this show. It is, and it's it's a little bit... Joe Montaigne brings out a little bit in his mm-hmm. one-liners and his little zingers and the fact that he's like the godfather of the unit and all that kind of stuff. So to bring in a, a younger voice with that same sort of feel was exciting to me to be able to hear that voice and to write that voice but also it had to be grounded in a in a foundation of why this character at this age has that point of view or has that sort of um that mouth on her <laughs> even though she's not she's not horrible but she definitely has yeah. an, an attitude that's different from our other characters sure. and so um then it was developing what made her this way mm-hmm. and i wanted her to be a mom 
um, but not in the traditional way. And and so I'm kind of racking my brain with how could she be the mom of a 13 year old? Because that's what I want. And then Wait, let's stop for a second. Yeah. Why was that what you wanted? Um, because our show over the 10 years has gone through the the you know Thomas Gibson's character in the pilot his wife is pregnant with their first and within the first few episodes you meet the baby mm-hmm. and that baby's name is Jack after my son Jack um, because Jack my son was just a year old when I started on the show yeah. um, and it is also one of those things where I remember the day we named Jack Hotchner Jack Hotchner and we named we specifically all said it was after Jack my Jack <laughs> And you just think the show might go on for 12 episodes. Like, you don't know that it's going to be, like, 10 years later. There's this kid, Jack, who's like, oh, now he's the same age. (laughs) Anyway, um, but we had done that. And then when A.J. Cook, season three and four, was pregnant with her son, Mm -hmm. we had done that. So it just felt like I don't... And Jennifer Love Hewitt has just had a baby within Mm -hmm. the last year. So the natural go-to is, okay, here's her baby, too. But we've seen those faces. Hmm. And I thought, let's jump ahead. You know, hopefully Jack Hotchner will be a teenager on this show. And it'll be on for five more years. But if he isn't, let's sort of jump ahead. And what are the stories and the challenges for a working mom with a teenage girl? And she's not a single mom. She is married. But, you know, what will that be? And then to sort of know that that's what we wanted but then have to f- backfill the story mm-hmm. why does she have a 13 year old was it a young child you know she was a young mother what, what's going on and because we're drama writers we had to come up with a dramatic reason sure. and sort of the most dramatic reason we could think of was also a very patriotic reason and, and a reason that this person would stay in the FBI and want to fight bad guys and it was that her sister and brother-in-law were killed in 9-11 they worked at the Pentagon and you know were working parents of this young baby and when they died Jennifer's character now lives in their home and is raising their child and that for me answered a lot of questions it's something we haven't done on this series at all Um, and Yet it's something that is very real that families in D.C., in New York, in law enforcement, all those things were affected in ways that you can't even imagine. And we I just thought that that was an interesting layer to give to a hero that works in the bureau. How do you guys how do you and the writers decide how and when to dole out that kind of personal story in the backstory? Um. Well, we Rochambeau for it. Obviously. Um, no, but... I mean, you're, uh, you're dealing with a lot of episodes over a season. Yeah. Like, more than other shows. Right. Um, so you've got a lot of story to fill. Right. And, you know, there, there's merit to getting it all out when she's introduced, and there's merit to steeping it out. Right. So we, you know, ideally we would be able to dole it out over a longer period of time, but the truth was we met Meg plays the daughter we met her at the end of the premiere and just kind of left the audience wondering well who is that she doesn't call jennifer's character's name is kate so she doesn't call her mom mm-hmm. she calls her kate but this is a surprise like every mm-hmm. and so leaving everybody wondering who is that what is, how is that working um was a fun thing and i think a good thing to do but then by the third episode um we do this massive plane crash episode and one of the theories along the way is could this be terrorism could it be another 9-11 in the making and so that brings up memories for her obviously that we just felt it was the natural time to fill the audience in on on this backstory that was not sort of intended we we kind of later on decided you know initially we said this is the character this is the backstory and then pretty quickly um, we're coming up with ideas for the season and Sharon Lee Watson pitched this plane crash idea and um, before planes were shot down. She actually pitched it before Malaysia Air went missing because hmm. she pitched it at the end of last year and we just didn't have the money to do it and so we said we'll do it at the beginning of the year 
So now I'm beginning to think that she can see the future, <laughs> which is frightening. Um, but anyway, then it matches up. Yeah, then it matched so up great. It's the natural place. So that by the third episode, the audience is in on what we had intended. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Um, so is that how the seasons generally begin? Is you know we establish anything new, anything we want to do, and then kind of start pitching stories. That's exactly it. We uh, we start literally day one is what worked, what didn't work, mm-hmm. um, and let's not do that again. Or how can we avoid doing that again? Um, what are I'd, I'd be curious to hear about some of the let's not do that again. I mean, again, you guys are ten seasons in, yeah, hundreds of episodes, yeah. Well, I'll, I'll obviously there are going to be missteps, but like for the writers, a misstep is not necessarily what the audience thinks, or even what the studio thinks, or the network. Yeah, that's completely right because we are the most critical in that room. Um, but I can speak to one that I wrote because then I'm not sure. throwing anyone else under the bus. Um, I wrote an episode where um, a young unsub was giving people lobotomies and he was actually filming it and then ended up putting it on the internet and it was this huge viral thing. It was disturbing and David Anders who I knew from Alias, played the unsub and didn't have a lot to say. His actions sort of spoke louder than anything. Um, But at the end of that, it was visually an amazing episode. Rob Bailey directed it. It looked fantastic. But at the end of the day, um, it wasn't the real simple, scary stuff that works like gangbusters on the show. It was a little bit big. It was a little... And when I really knew how big it was is when... My family uh, sits down to watch Agents of Shield every week, and it happened <laughs> in Agents of Shield. And I was like, "Oh, no, so I wrote a comic book episode? Right. Ooh, that's what I did." So then I have to own that and talk to the room about it and say, "You know, the thing I preach about real simple scary, I didn't do. Hmm. I didn't do in that episode. And let's not do that again. Let's call each other on that and and make sure. And you know, I could specifically say where I didn't feel empathy. I didn't feel." Um, it, it was very creepy, but it wasn't. It wasn't grounded. It just yeah. wasn't grounded. And it's such a. It's not a definite line, though. I mean, no. there, there's probably a way to do that, uh, in the real simple, scary way. What, what are the episodes that work best uh, in that way? Like, what are the ones that show the real simple, scary to you? I think if you, as the audience, connect with someone in the story that, oh my gosh, I run at night, and this guy's abducting (laughs) women at night, and he's riding around in a cable van, and that means I'm now going to be hypervigilant of cable vans. If if it's that thing that keeps you thinking as you're watching the episode of um, maybe I should get a security system, or maybe, oh my gosh, I didn't even think about if the security system guy is bad. Oh my god, what if that happened? You know, it's, it's, it's I don't want to say fueling people's paranoia, but when it makes you stop and think mm-hmm. or it writes to people's fears. We, we have an episode this season where Brain Fraser wrote it and um, the unsub is a, you know, completely delusional person who believes that there's cockroaches in his blood. And then he tortures people who should be able to help him, like scientists mm-hmm. and stuff. Um, to make them know what it feels like kind of thing. It is the squirmiest, most uncomfortable episode we've ever had. And we're all like, oh gosh, you don't see any violence. Mm-hmm. It's just the torture of bugs. And it it's one of those things that just preys on people's fears where you're like, that's not happening. Yeah. Oh God. It feels really personal. Yeah, yeah. it does. And so um, I think those are, are the best episodes that can just reach the majority of the audience in uh, I feel really scared now. I feel uncomfortable, um, or I feel like I learned something. Because you know, sometimes we, in, in the premiere, um, one of the female victim who we save—spoiler alert—she um, fights back, mm-hmm. and you see it in a really psychological, interesting way, where she knows. And I've read about so many of these cases, which is why I wanted to do it she knows what to say to this guy who's got to be really lonely. She's taking in her surroundings. She's looking at, at 
you know, the crimes that he's committed, and she's she's trying to connect on with him on a human level because at the end of the day, they are human, and so if you can sort of separate the evil from them and just connect with them on that level, you might have a chance. And a lot of these stories of um, survivors are just that. They find this way to not be scared for, I mean, they're probably scared to death, but in this moment it's about survival and they can like flip a switch and know what to say and do to get an upper hand to survive. Hmm. So, um, those, you know, I, you know, hope that nobody's in that situation and and they're remembering a a, a tip from criminal minds, but, um, (laughs) you know, I think that it's important to show that that side of things. Yeah. There's something really empowering about that. Um, but it's also surprising that season 10 is when you're telling that story. Like, you guys must look back and say, when you say, what haven't we done? What haven't you done? You it's know? true. Like, that's, that's a great angle on it. it is, yeah. I mean, obviously, you guys must do a ton of research. You must do a lot of reading, as well as your own sick imaginations. But, right. you know, to find the new angle on a story that you've done before or that is familiar or that, you know, you know you can make work in the show. Right. Um, are, are there times when you're hitting your heads against the wall or does it still come pretty quickly? Well, we joke that there's no low-hanging fruit in that writer's yeah. room. Definitely not. So we have our ladders out <laughs> and we're trying to come up with stuff. Um, but I think that for the most part, somebody's read something, somebody's heard something, Mm -hmm. and it just sparks an idea, and then what that room does best is just keeps building, and, Mm -hmm. you know, we might build something for a day, and then walk away and come back and say, that doesn't work, and here's why, and readjust, and we've all been together for four seasons now, Mm -hmm. so there's a shorthand there, there's a respect and a trust that we all have with one another that... It is about the show. It's not about any individual on this show. So we can say, hey, I know that you're passionate about this, but it doesn't work for me. Does anyone else feel this way? And we're not picking on anyone. We're just, you know, again, it's to make the best episode. So, um, but within that, I think we haven't hit a wall. I mean, we've never come in after having a couple weeks off and said, I am completely out of ideas. Nobody's <laughs> ever said that, and me included, and I've been here 10 years. Yeah, so that's awesome. The, the, one of the reasons I think the show can go on and on is because it's about human behavior, mm-hmm. and that's endless. I mean, I just heard on NPR this morning that, you know, out in the San Gabriel Valley, there's a disturbing trend. It's been happening for two years where the um, trash conveyor, has been showing up human remains on the trash conveyor. It's happened like four or five times in the last two years. And I'm like, that is a serial killer disposing of bodies in the trash. And they're just like, clearly, hello. Oh my God. And so, but then I think like, is that an episode? That's clearly an episode. I mean, that's (laughs) such a visual for an episode. Yeah. But, you know, so sadly, the inspiration is in the real world. Yeah. Um, On, along the same lines, are there places you haven't gotten to go with the characters? that you are interested to go? That's a great question because I think, especially with Cable, our instincts are always to make our characters oh, yeah. a little bit more flawed. I didn't like, think of that, yeah. You know, and um, we, we never really get that opportunity. And if we come up with something that seems a little Don Draper-ish, then <laughs> we don't get that approval from anyone. I really? mean, the, I'm really protective of this gang, but they are also incredibly protective of their characters because they've been playing them for so long. And the studio network are also like, "Mm, that doesn't feel like that character to us. And, and so the bigger thing wins out always, which is the perception of the character, um, always trumps a a good, fun, edgy story Mm -hmm. or an arc that we might want to do. Um, but that said, we're very aware of adding layers to those characters every year. Mm -hmm. And, um, you're always learning something about, somebody that you never knew before mm-hmm. because that's life you're always right, right? so and there, there's you know it doesn't have to be a big deep dark thing also right. I mean you can do that incrementally I think you guys have done that well mm-hmm. it keeps it interesting um, sort of a, a complimentary question is you know you were there from the beginning was there stuff that the writers discovered about the characters because of 
the actors. I'm always curious about what they bring to what the original idea is, and then what the actors bring to it. Right. Um, yes, absolutely. And I think with um, pretty early on, the characters were well defined. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, even in the general sense of they're good guys. Mm-hmm. Um, and where where are their boundaries? Um, and in you know did somebody tackle someone too hard and, or did they, did they really have to shoot them in the leg or whatever, you know, I mean, we deal with that kind of thing. Um, and sometimes the actors will have a strong point of view about, um, there's no way my character would do that. Mm -hmm. Um, and even with that, it has been, I think this is unlike other shows as well. It has been a collaboration with the actors because they've been here for so long that we as writers will come up with ideas and we will run them by the actors and they are heard. I mean, Mm -hmm. we absolutely don't want to give someone something that they're so against that it won't read true on the screen or that it's, it's giving their character a layer that sort of negates a good 10 years that they've had. All of those things are important. Um, And we've, Again, I mean, the funny thing is we, we gave characters things sort of early on, not ever believing that eight years later yes. we'd still be dealing with it or what are the ramifications of it or do we just pretend it didn't happen? I mean, these things are coming up now because as writers we're looking at the, those characters' histories and saying, okay, can we build on that? We mm-hmm. haven't really dealt with it in a while. This you know, this story sort of gave an, a natural bridge to revisiting that story and... Um, and we actually tried to do that this year, and the actor was like, I really don't want to... I want to pretend that story never happened. Wow. And, okay. and and the argument was valid, and the argument was, that was season two. I was younger. Mm-hmm. I thought it was a cool thing to do. The cool kid writers were writing it. I wanted to <laughs> go with them. And if you presented that story to me today, which you're presenting a version of it, I don't want to do it. Interesting. And so, you know, I think some shows would say, we don't care, but this show's different. It just sure. it was always set up that way. That's, that's really interesting. Um, <clears throat> let's let's go back. Uh, where where were you coming from before Criminal Minds? What were you coming off of then? Um, you must have been a kid, also a child bride. <laughs> um, I we could go. We could start with. We could start wherever you my like. trip to LA. <laughs> um, so in. I moved here right after college and worked at Fox mm-hmm. when Fox Broadcasting had a lot of dramas. Did you... Um, okay, listen, let's go back even more. Okay. Did you... <laughs> you're probably going to cry by the end of this. Did you, did you know why you were moving here? Did you know you wanted to write television? Um, yes. Okay. Yes. I was headed to New York to work um, in the news magazine world because a lot of what I had done in school was documentary work and I loved that because you wrote directed edited you did the whole thing and I loved it and back in the mid 90s news magazines were on seven days a week Um, and so the work was all in New York and and that's where I was headed and then um, my boyfriend now husband and I felt like New York was our backyard because we lived in uh, Maryland and it just felt like now's the time to go spread your wings and we decided to move to LA we had some friends who lived here and um, I knew moving to LA I wasn't going to go work at the Gap or for you know I wasn't going (laughs) to wait tables I was like no if I'm moving to LA I need to work in the industry because that's Mm -hmm. what I want to do and knowing that it was hard just to walk into a show and say, hey. um, Are you ready for me? Right. So I went through the temp circuit at Fox and then quickly met who became my boss, Jeff Eckerly, who was the vice president of drama series. Um, And that's when it was Melrose and 90210 were sort of the staples. Mm -hmm. X-Files, Party of Five, uh, Ally McBeal, New York Undercover. I mean, it was just like on and on. They had a ton of dramas and a ton of comedies at the time. So um, when the scripts would come in from all of these series, I'd read them all. And and then my boss would do the notes and I'd listen in on the notes calls Hmm. and all that. And I just thought, 
I don't want to be giving notes. I want to be giving the scripts. I want to be on the other side. And so I ended up um, making friends with a lot of the assistants on those shows and called around at the very wrong time because everything was staffed up. But the the timing was right on Party of Five because there was an exec producer who was leaving to do a pilot and he was taking the writer's assistant with Mm -hmm. him. So I went over and met on that show and worked there for... um, Had you even written a script at this point? Um, I had written an Allie McBeal spec. Okay. Which is my only drama um, (laughs) spec. But but to be the writer's assistant, you really just had to have a passion for wanting to be around writers. Mm -hmm. And um, it it was by no means a requirement to have anything written. Sure. Um, And then the beautiful thing in that camp over there at Party 5 was that they were so supportive and um, I remember working for Chris Kaiser and Amy Lippman who created the show and I spent like three years with them I think and they, Chris would say you know, why don't you write write this scene Hmm. in a Party 5 episode and just see what it feels like and then he would give you notes on the scene and that was the best grad school you could ever have because you're getting it right from the creator Um, and I learned a lot doing those little exercises with yeah. with him. Um, Do you remember specifics from that time? Uh, yeah, about like, like scenes that you wrote that you were noted that you actually learned from. Um, yeah, I, I remember it was a scene with Charlie and Daphne, <laughs> and um, Daphne had just had the baby, and they weren't, you know, planning on having the baby, so it was a surprise and her reaction had to be really extreme to, you know, sort of new motherhood and and exhaustion and everything else. And the only thing I could tap into at the time was being exhausted because I had no motherhood skills. So it was just, it it ended up being more of like a bickering scene between Charlie and Daphne and, and sort of how exhaustion plays a part in you're trying to sleep and you're hearing the person next to you breathe and you're like, will you stop breathing? And they can't stop breathing. <laughs> but, um, so it, it played on that level, but the, the, the layer that was missing, um, was that parenting mm-hmm. level. And that's what the writer brought to that scene. And he, it was PK Simmons and he was actually a new dad at the time. Mm-hmm. And so he could bring a funny anecdote from home and put it in a script. And I didn't have that skill set. And, and not, that's not to say that, that's why I went out and had babies. But um, but it is a lesson that you learn as a writer that um, you have to tap into that other side, even if you mm-hmm. just imagine what that other side is. Or you tap into a friend's story of being exhausted when they just had a kid or whatever. It's, it's, it's looking for those real-life moments that are relatable. Mm-hmm. And that's what I think wins every time. That's great. That's some great advice. Um, all right. So you were, you were with Party 5 for how long? Um, I think about three years, and then during that time, Chris and Amy had developed Time of Your Life, which was right. a spinoff with Jennifer Love Hewitt, and they had done um, a show called Significant Others. They were yeah. doing while I joined them, and I think they had done some other pilots maybe for CBS, and um, Jennifer Garner left Time of Your Life to go shoot Alias, and then... Uh, I had a writing partner at the time who was also working for Chris and Amy, and she and I had written some specs and got a lot of general meetings. And our Wait, first, in, in what capacity was the partner working for Chris and Amy? Uh, she was Amy's assistant. Okay. I was Chris's assistant. Oh, okay. yeah. so you were both assistants. So we were both we're assistants, a, and that's great. Yeah, it was great because we could sit there and talk stories and stuff. So, um, and our first showrunner meeting was with J.J. Abrams hmm. for Alias. And I remember our agents not being entirely clear on if it was for Alias or Felicity, because both were on the air. Um, but we just kind of went with God that it was for Alias and and met with him. Oh, and a, a Starbucks turned into a lunch. And then um, and the nice thing for us was that we knew Jennifer from mm-hmm. um, Time of Your Life and Significant Other. She was in both of those shows with Chris and Amy. So there was a nice connection there that we're going to go to work and, and, and know right. the star of the show, right. which is really lovely. Um, so, so how did, uh, had you guys read the alias script then? We had read it. We had not seen it right. at that point, but okay. we had read that opus of 
75 pages or whatever it was. Was it really? Um, yeah, huge. it was a big one. That's funny. It was a big one. Was it not a 60-minute? It was not. I don't remember. It was not. It was actually aired without commercial interruption. Really? Yeah. I did not remember that. Yeah. That's funny. Yeah. Um, so you were quickly hired because you clearly were talented and charming in this meeting. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for saying it. Um, no. I, you know, it was... It, the stars aligned, and mm-hmm. it was great. And... Sure. So we left working for Chris and Amy and went directly into the Alias Writers Room and and we were on that show for the first two seasons. And let me let me just interrupt mm-hmm. for a sec. Did you guys have material that you had created together uh, that that JJ yes. read? We read we wrote. I'm completely aging this. We wrote a Once and Again spec. Awesome. And a Sex in the City spec. Oh my God. <laughs> so just to show, you know, voices and whatever. Mm-hmm. But um uh yeah, those were the specs that JJ read and then um there were only three women on the writing staff out of ten writers mm-hmm. um that first season and again the second season. Um so we always felt as the females in the room that it was very much our job to keep Sydney Bristow mm-hmm. grounded and um and I don't want to say girly because that's not right, but right. but relatable in in a woman in a woman, and, a woman. A, and you always cipher or an action hero. Yeah, and it was the she she is the kind of actress that I think she has in spades anyway. That girls want to be friends with her and, and guys want to date her. So we it was sort of our unspoken job to keep that side of her alive mm. and relatable, and then by the second season the show sort of took a turn and it became less about the real relatable girl and more about the super spy all the time and her personal world took such a turn that nothing was real anymore Mm -hmm. so sitting with your friend and having ice cream was then going to turn into your friend's been cloned right and that really (laughs) happened (laughs) so take me if you would inside the room when the writers, like, how how did the writers come to, and again, I'm not super familiar with Alias, I haven't seen it in years and years, but throwing away, basically, so much of that first season for this plot turn that, that did get rid of a lot of the human element, and I feel like a lot of what probably sold the show in the first place. Well, I, right, because I think, you know, this was this was not the pitch by any means, but I think it was... It was, what if Felicity became yeah. a super agent? And that Felicity element went away. Yeah. Um, and it, it was, for me, because I felt like that was a, a strength or, or certainly something I could bring to that show. When, when it went away, there was a sadness there for sure because I just felt like I don't know this comic book world. I've yeah. learned a lot about it, but I don't know that world the way I know the world of, of you know, being... A young woman. So um, it was, I think it was a perfect combination of our, our numbers were strong but not fantastic. Um, so there's always the goal of bringing new eyeballs to your show. Mm-hmm. The show had a complex nature, and um, she spent just as much time with SD6 as she did with the CIA. In fact, people were. I think if they'd never seen it, we're very confused as to who Arvin Sloan was and who Michael Vartan was playing and all of that. So in season two, ABC gave Alias the post-Super Bowl slot. And they and JJ basically felt like this was our chance to get the most eyeballs we'll ever get. Mm -hmm. And let's do something radical, which will sort of alter the... Mm-hmm. Course, a of, kind of reset, right? Yeah. A reset, and in doing it, the reset was to get rid of SD six, which was the bad guys that Sydney thought were good guys, and then now she is just an agent for the CIA. Mm-hmm. Um, but in doing that, she now doesn't need to lie to her friends. Right. She can just say, "Hey, friends, you thought I was working at a bank? I'm really a CIA agent." Yeah. Um, you lose the metaphor. You lose the metaphor completely, and and then. In doing that, I remember um, JJ and Bob Orsi and Alex Kurtzman coming in after having a, a you know big brain session in another room. They came in and said, "We've got it. Um, the end of this one episode will be 
you think it's Marion Dungey who played her friend mm-hmm. Francie, you will think it's Francie, and then you will realize the real Francie's dead, and this is a Francie clone. And I think, for me, it was just like a sucker punch in the gut, and I said, we're doing an evil twin story? Like, that's what's <laughs> happening? But it wasn't even that. It was, it was, it was bigger, and it was a big yeah. turn for the series of no anything and everything that you thought was normal and lovely about this girl is now going to be taken away from her. So now she's a victim on such a massive level that um, it just, it, it did, it changed everything. And Marin Dungey didn't last on the show much longer and yeah. neither did Bradley Cooper because those two actors played her real life component and her real life component went away. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and as you said, it became this comic book Story, um, which it seems like that's not that's not what you're interested in. No, I, I you know I still cheered it on, obviously, sure. but it wasn't um, it it wasn't my strength, right. and so um, so after two years on Alias, my partner and I went to the OC, mm-hmm. and that was the first season of the OC, which was this little juggernaut that was going to be a six-episode summer series, which is why we started not even a week after leaving Alias. We were in the writer's room on the OC. But it quickly became a 13-episode order and then quickly became a back nine. So we did a lot of episodes of that series in its first season. And that was almost, um, I guess, my strength and, and, and passion. But in the other direction yes. of like, oh my gosh, now it's a soap <laughs> and it's all this stuff. But within that, I mean, I remain, you know, really proud of that first season, that show, because the writer's room was small mm-hmm. and Josh Schwartz had a lot, you know, he, he wrote n- nearly every episode, but in the room, the writers in the room brought a lot. We brought our mistakes to those characters. Mm-hmm. We, That's, I was really curious. Yeah. We channeled our 15 year old selves <laughs> and said, no, you do the bad thing and you and you learn from it or you don't learn from it or these drastic things happen. It, it actually does happen that way. It's set in a world of extreme, right. I mean, in Orange County, but but we, again, we tried to ground those characters that I can relate to that. It, I did not grow up with a fancy house and fancy cars and fancy parents, but I can relate to that problem that that character's having mm-hmm. because it's not a universal problem, but it, it's a relatable one. Yeah, and the specificity makes it even, yeah. even better, makes it about that character, yeah. if we can relate to that. Do you, Are there conversations you recall about uh, big moves in that first season, or stories that you pitched that you felt like represent you, whether you wrote them or not? Oh, that's interesting. Um, I mean, I think it, it was less me and more the world I grew up in where um, I grew up in a place called Ocean City, Maryland so it was also called OC which is funny <laughs> but um, but a much different OC um, but it's the, the character of um, uh, Marissa and you know being in a relationship with Luke who's the one you know he fits the boxes for her. I mean he, he's like the, the the best looking one, the most successful one, the whatever, and she's the pretty girl, and she needs to be with that guy. But then Ryan comes in from Chino, and it's like, well, hello, what's happening over here? And I I shouldn't like this thing over here, but I do, and I think that that's I mean that's a very normal, that's a mm-hmm. very relatable story. Yeah. That's probably in a Robert McKee book somewhere. <laughs> like you know, it's the the good girls with that boy, but the right. bad boy comes to town and. And it turns out the bad boy is actually the good guy, and the one she's with, who looks like the good guy, is the bad guy. But, and yeah. so you just relate to that, and you say, "I fell for that guy," mm-hmm. and here's what I learned from it. And why, and then it's the question of like, why are people attracted to that? And some people mm-hmm. are, and some people aren't. And and so you bring that into into the character, and and you're bringing a part of yourself to that. It feels like even despite that relatability and and. I mean, that seems so obvious now, that, that there's, that's a story generator. Um, it seems like Marissa was a, would have been a difficult character to write for, because so much of the story was through uh, Ben McKinnon, through Ryan's eyes. Right. Uh, and then later, like, it feels like you guys must have had a room full of Seth Cohen's. But, yeah, <laughs> yeah. But, like, that's a character that could prove elusive, 
Yeah, it was, she was one of the toughest to write for, and I think that's why she probably left this series before mm. anybody else did. Um, but she was sort of that friend, that sister, that person that you knew that was kind of that tragic figure that you wanted her to make the right choices, you wanted her to do the right thing, but she was sort of doomed to keep repeating her mistakes. Mm -hmm. And I think we all might not be able to relate to that specifically um, on on a continuous basis, (laughs) but but I think you could look at an episode and say, yeah, I kind of did something a little like that, and that's not really okay. Yeah, you could empathize with that character. And the parents on that show were so great. Um, And what was interesting at the time is the writer's room, um, no one was a a mom or dad. Hmm. Um, But Bob DeLaurentiis was, um, he he was brought on as an executive producer and, and really sort of uh, shepherded the set in a lot of post-production and everything. So he wasn't always in the room with us. We would pitch him ideas when we pitched Josh ideas, but right. but he wasn't in there generating. Um, and those of us who were uh, had a lot of fun writing the parents because it was almost our version of what we wish the yeah. parents had done versus <laughs> what maybe what your parents would really do. Um, but there was also a great story turned through. For, like, they were a part of the show. Yeah. They were part of the soap opera. Yeah, um, they were. They all had their own life and struggles yeah. and complications. Yeah, all it's interesting. That. Yeah. Uh, and it wasn't just about how it affected the the young characters. Was it, so it must have been a very young room. Yeah, I think it was. I mean, I I think that um, it was a great room. Alan Heinberg was in it. Right. Um, Melissa Rosenberg, Liz Friedman, Lauren Gussis, uh, Deb Fisher, who was my writing partner, um, and then Josh Schwartz and Stephanie Savage. So... Yeah, it's kind of, I mean, you know, you look at it then, and you're, and you're just in your work right. environment, but you look at it 10 years later, and you're like, oh, that's a, that's a really good room. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, it, Those people it's, can write. Yeah, considering where everybody's landed since. Yeah. Um, what, what did you learn? I mean, you guys were doing, what, 22 episodes? How long were you with the series? I was with the OC the first season, okay. and it was a marathon season. I think yeah. it was 26. Wow. It couldn't be a fight of the week. Right. Ryan couldn't get into a fist fight at every party. Right. How did you get, how did you deal with the serialized stuff? I mean, I guess you guys were coming off of Alias where you weren't really doing that, but she also had a mission every week. There was a kind of procedural aspect to it. Um, how did the how did the how did you learn to write the soap, I guess? Right. Well, um, Party Five was not a soap necessarily, but it was certainly serialized oh, um, storytelling, and so it was kind of at that point I feel in my DNA, mm-hmm. um, if only through osmosis, um, that you can't have Ryan in a fist fight every week. You can't have someone getting cancer. You can't have those things that may happen in real life, but you you do have to dole them out. Mm-hmm. So we would look for big big sort of tent poles through the season, which we do on any serialized show. We even do it on this show, which is yeah. not so serialized, but um, so I remember, okay, we we're going to do the, the trip to Tijuana. Like, when is that going to happen? What's going to happen there? Stuff's going to hit the fan. It's going to get ugly. Um, and then, you know, school, what, is, what does it look like for this Ryan, this new kid, fish out of water to be in this rich kid's school? Mm-hmm. What is all of that going to be like? So you would just Again, you would you would kind of play it out that okay, summer's almost over. They're at a beach party. It's awkward, and they're going to start school next week. Okay, what is that going to look like? Um, and then you know, learning, the, remembering the politics of high school, and mm-hmm. then what do you want the politics of this high school to look like? And um, and I think again, it it all goes to characters. There were characters created in that pilot by Josh that were lovable people that you wanted to check in with every week. I mean, even Luke, who is a villain, you love to hate him. And there's always a redeeming quality in a character. It just might take a minute to find it. And and I think certainly um, Seth Cohen and Summer were a fun thing to write and and sort of that unrequited love of it all. Um, And so there was just... It was kind of rich for for stories. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Um... You must have been. You must have gone to set on Party of Five if you were with uh, uh, those guys. But were you sent to set as a writer on Alias or the OC? No, in fact, um, we weren't. And part of that for Alias was because we were on location a lot, mm-hmm. and um, the hours might be really crummy. So we were required to be in the room all day. 
from nine to six every day. Um, and then you would, you might get a pass if you were writing, mm-hmm. but for the most part, you were in Burbank in building 23. And was it, Disneyland. yeah, and was it that story intensive too? Like, were you guys in the room working that whole time? Yep. That's it would, it would take at least a week to break an episode sure. um, because there were so many threads. And then we were, were pretty good about sort of stepping out what that season, first season was going to be. Mm-hmm. In fact, um, I remember JJ was very involved in, in that first season and, and saying, you know, I want the last moment of the finale to be Sydney seeing her mom. Hmm. And so we always had on our big board of, you know, uh, index cards, episode 23, Sydney, <laughs> mom, question mark. Yeah. And we also knew that naturally, storytelling-wise, what that would do is that would make season two about mom mm-hmm. coming to join the show. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's exactly what happened. And there's a lot of fun in that. And within that, you also unpack a lot of mystery of mom and dad, and then you unpack the larger mystery of they're living with, they're living in a world within a world, mm-hmm. essentially like <laughs> they're living in their own, their own universe where bad stuff happens and people get cloned right? and they just happen to be on earth. <laughs> <laughs> that is the best description of aliens that I've ever heard. And they happen to live on earth. <laughs> Not our earth. Don't get, don't get invested. Um, all right. Uh, for how long did you work with a partner? Uh, up until the fourth season of this show, so almost eight, seven years, seven years, I think. Well, and I would imagine, you know, you're on a show for a while, and that collaboration that you immediately got from a partner, you're now getting from the whole room, and, and if you're running the show from, you know, all kinds of divisions and departments. Right. Um, that's interesting. Yeah, uh, the, the writer's room here in the, the first handful of seasons was very tight, and almost, you know, maybe too tight. We were... We were definitely a family, a dysfunctional one, um, but but it did provide uh, sort of the the one brain think mm-hmm. on, on stuff that that we could always in private, you know, talk about stuff and and, right. and for better or worse. But there was a bigger support system outside of our office that really looked out for the episode and the series and all that. Yeah. So so you're right. It. it it becomes you, you sort of become partners with everyone that's on staff. Yeah, uh, which you know again is is good and bad. Right. Um, were there were there wrong roads that you guys went down on Criminal Minds that the staff went down as you guys were discovering what the show is? Uh, you know whether it was about going too dark or being too light or being too much about the personal story and not enough about the crime story or vice versa. Yeah, I think. One thing we would we would always say we we wish we had more of is the personal stories. Mm-hmm. We wish that we had been able to go home with them more often, and it's understandable. In the first season of a show, uh, there's a lot of cooks in the kitchen, and they're all um, believing they know what the right path is. And so the sort of the the one thing everyone could agree on was we would do close ended episodes every week, mm-hmm. and there there would be like a little through line of how it touched one of the characters. But essentially, it, it was going to be a really rare thing to go home with them. Hmm. Now, once we got our full season order for episode one, we started playing with that a little bit more and saying, you know, people are tuning in to be scared, but they're really tuning in because they love these characters. Mm-hmm. Again, you're inviting them into your home mm-hmm. on your screen every week. So um, I wish that we had done more of that, and I think everyone here would agree. Mm-hmm. But... When you have such a large ensemble, sure. it's also difficult to... You can't go home with all of them every week. And um, and then you don't want to pick favorites. And then it's a matter of everybody getting equal. Well, it's uh, a different show, amounts. too. It is a different show, uh, yeah. When, when you're going home with everyone every week. Right. I mean, Law & Order goes home with no one, and that's a different show also. And went on forever and ever. And, exactly. And I think that that is sort of what everybody was looking at. Here that you you clearly have you have enough to fill forty two minutes with the crime, mm-hmm. you know you mm-hmm. just do. But we, you know, again bookend it with a personal story or or it's a little runner throughout right. that somebody has a, a, a certain take on things. Um, so that and then I think certainly in that first season, maybe in the first two seasons, it was so based in reality and sort of a new shiny thing for all of us that. 
we were equally like grossed out and enthralled with the research we were doing <laughs> and you know diving past the the serial killers that are sort of of the culture like People mm-hmm. have heard of Ted Bundy sure. and Green River and Zodiac. And, you know, these are not household names, but certainly names that, that people are aware of. But then you think, oh, my gosh, did you read about this guy mm. in, in, you know, the 1980s who did this in New York? And it's like, no, I didn't even know about him. And then you start reading and you're like, ah, uh, there are thousands of people and thousands of cases that we never even heard of as a society and a culture. And yet there are thousands of books written about of these people. I mean, it's it continues to shock me that there's a new serial killer book out all the time because <laughs> people are fascinated with human nature and what makes this what makes Jeffrey Dahmer want to do that? Like seriously, what happened to him? And there was a book that I read which was like one of the best books because it was it was written by a classmate of Jeffrey Dahmer's from the 70s they went to high school together and he's a comic book artist and he wrote um, he wrote a graphic novel Mm -hmm. about friends with Dahmer or something like that My Friend Dahmer I think was the name of it and what you realize is they were not really friends but they were the closest Dahmer had to a friend but that he was sort of sort of screwed from the beginning I mean genetics but also being raised in an environment that was beyond neglectful and and just socially was such an outcast and such a, you know, a, you know, my psychological term of weirdo, yeah. you know, but he was, it's like, he was really isolated and bizarre and had strange fantasies and then brought them to life. And, you know, there are so many people out there with that story. We just happen to know Dahmer. Mm-hmm. There, I kind of have two questions in this area, but one is, uh, I was talking to someone recently who's working on a, a feelings-based show, and uh, they were talking about like on on a crime show, they were given the advice that you need to care about someone, and it can't be the dead body. You know, is and and it feels like on Criminal Minds, it's not the killer that we care about; it's I guess the potential victims. Like, how do you how do you make those characters that we care about every week? Well, often we connect with the victim's families. So if there is a victim before we're able to save them, we're talking to them and and you're seeing sort of the after effect of what happens to somebody. And again, if you've lost anyone, it doesn't matter if it was, um, you know, an immediate tragic accident or a long drawn out illness. If you've lost someone, you can sit there and watch that scene and be... Um, affected by it, be moved by it because the circumstances are different but you can remember the emotion. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think that always works. And then I think um, we play sort of the thrill and suspense of saving that person. And if you know that person has somebody, you know, waiting for them in, you know, in the safe world, then you want to reunite those people as fast as possible. Um, and there are occasions, and this is where I think we did this early on and it, it was the right move to do, where you do feel empathy for the killer. Mm-hmm. It's not easy to do because obviously they're doing something horrific, but, and, I, and I'm not, I, I'm not advocating that you feel sympathy for a, a killer, but there are times where you can kind of understand why somebody snapped. They're doing the absolute mm-hmm. wrong thing, but you can kind of understand how they got there. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, for sure. You know, yeah. so... Uh, and I guess the other the other question this suggests to me is, you know, coming from Party of Five and uh, the OC in that first season of Alias, is it the human nature uh, aspect of the criminal mind stories that's kind of pushing the button for you as far as your interest in the show and, and what keeps you going on the show? Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. And yeah. It's always what makes somebody tick, whether they're mm-hmm. good, bad, or, or whatever. And every show has that. Mm-hmm. And this just does it in a different, different setting. Um, <clears throat> what's next? Do you get to talk about it? We started talking about this, and we can take this out if you want, but are you getting to 
<coughs> develop other things? Are you getting to write other stuff? Um, I'm right now uh, possibly working on an, on an idea that's of the criminal minds world. So it's not, um, there's nothing definite with that, but it, it's, it's um, again, sort of, you know, if it could be built from the executive producers of criminal minds, that's, you know, what we would uh, build I want it as. to be a family drama. I'm telling <laughs> so you, badly. like, that's what, that's what I write sort of in my own time. Uh, I'm working on a movie that's a PG movie because um, I want my kids to be able to see something I write and they've seen nothing. <laughs> you give them and an I edited think, version of a Criminal Minds episode? No. Like I, think three at, minutes long. I think at a certain point they could actually watch Alias. Sure. You know, because they love S.H.I.E.L.D. Right. And I feel like yeah, at a certain point the they'll be interested in Alias. Yeah. Um, but no, their entire lives, this is what I've done. So I try, you know, when I write things sort of to go a different direction mm-hmm. or write it for myself, mm-hmm. um, it is nowhere near this world. Mm-hmm. It's a story set in the eighties about a girl who's, you know, lost her mom and you know what that family drama is and all that, but it's not anywhere near this universe. <laughs> Well, that's that's great. I mean, that you get to do the, both of these things right. and get to play in these different worlds. Uh, and as we always do, what are you watching on TV? What are you talking about with your family, your room, your friends? What's getting you excited or inspired? Um, this so at home, we watch Agents of Shield and sure. the Goldbergs. <laughs> that is, and it used to be appointment television when it was on the same night, and now that's two different nights. We actually have to record both and start them at like seven o'clock. <laughs> the good news with that is we can fast forward through the news, which is incredibly depressing and often very scary. And there are a lot of questions asked when they see oh. the news, like you know, bad stuff. Yeah. But um, so that's the bonus to not sitting in front of the TV for live television. Um, so as a family, we're watching that and then movies, as many as we can soak in. The kids love really? any and all. We watched um, Eddie Murphy's A Thousand Words recently. Oh it was really sweet. I mean, they're going to love it because it's Eddie Murphy walking crazy and, <laughs> and acting crazy. Right. But by the end of the movie, they were crying. They're crying. Because it, it was an interesting lesson and an interesting story. And they... I couldn't believe that we're sitting at the cove watching Thousand Words, and there we were. Um, in the room, we're all watching. Um, everybody's got a little different something, but we're watching shows like The Fall with Jolene Anderson mm-hmm. because it is so much this show. We're mm-hmm. watching Luther, um, and desperate for that to come back. I'm not sure if it is. Uh, some are watching Downton Abbey. Um, you know, it, it tends to be more things that that aren't on network that aren't sort of our structure mm-hmm. um and i think you know even back when i watched tv more often sure. um i watched things like 30 rock because i could not think about where they were going yeah. or think about an act out or any of that i just enjoyed the heck out of it and um and i think that's one of the reasons we watch sort of the bbc versions of this show mm-hmm. is because it's look what they did. Oh my gosh, did you see that episode? It was totally one we did. Uh, you know, that kind of thing. But, but, you know, not, not aggravated about that. Just, you know. It must be interesting seeing the way story is doled out differently. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, the, a, a different take on the same subject. Yeah. Do you, does it inform what you guys do? A little bit. I mean, we can, The Fall, for example, <laughs> yeah. it, it follows Jillian Anderson's character as much as it follows the Unsub's character. And you're, I would say you're equally, screen time is equal mm-hmm. between the two. And that's something we don't do at all. Yeah. I mean, we are with the bad guy seconds compared to how long we're with our heroes. But we have done episodes long before the fall where, where we've spent more time with the unsub. Mm-hmm. Um, and...
when you make that story a play, mm-hmm. um, you get bigger actors because they want to come sure. and be on the show and play a bad guy because yeah. not many people get to do that. Um, so I think that we're um, we're sort of you know excited about seeing the same material you're given the same material the mm-hmm. bad guy's got to do a bad thing how does this show do do it and then how do we do it yeah. and it's just it, the fall is also completely serialized yeah um but but it's it's kind of uh even though it's in our world you, you can escape a little bit when you watch it oh for sure that's yeah. it um and before we go, is there stuff that you can tell the listeners that you are excited about for this current season of Criminal Minds? Oh, yeah. Anything you can talk about? Well, season 10 is going to bring um, not just the new character, Jennifer mm-hmm. Love Hewitt is playing Kate Callahan, um, but, you know, the thing that our audience has watched for, for nine years now has been this team and the heroes that they love. And so we will be... Um, seeing how Jennifer's character sort of joins that family, but it is really about this family and, and, um, and we will show you their home life. We will see Jack Hotchner again. Um, and we're doing a couple of really big episodes out of the gate. This plane crash one was, it looks like a feature. It's amazing. Um, and, guest cast as usual is top notch. Uh, Alicia Coppola is in the fourth episode she may or may not have tarantulas crawling on her. <laughs> uh, that's assumed for any character right, coming in. Exactly. <laughs> um, and uh, no, it's just it's a it's a really fun, good season. We're gonna give the fans uh, a little surprise halfway through the year, and Ooh. and write a little little love letter to them. Cool, awesome. We can't wait. Thank you so much, Erica. Of course. Thank you so much. Now leaving Nerdist.com. What? <laughs>